I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Welcome to Cybersecurity Interviews. It's back. After a long hiatus and a lot going on in my life, I am bringing back the podcast. In order to do so, I brought my good friend and colleague and data privacy and cybersecurity person of interest, Dan Ayala, to interview me. So over the next few episodes, we'll discuss where I've been in the past 18 months, what I'm doing now, and where I think this industry is going, and why I plan to leave it within the next seven years. Your title on in email and on LinkedIn and other places is special master and court appointed neutral. Set the record straight. This morning. <laughs> set, set the record it's straight. Work in progress on special masters. Um, there's been a lot. They've been in the, the title's been in the news a lot lately. Um, but not everyone, no one, understands what the function really is or what it does. Tell us more. Tell me more. I'm, I'm, I know everyone's interested in what it is and what you're doing with it and how the heck does it apply to InfoSec or your, your, your upbringing? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an accumulation of, of just about everything. You know, I find myself now, like I said, in my career where I've questioned a lot of things, I always had this impression, wonder should I be here? Maybe I'm just the wrong fit, but the fact that I've always been an outsider and never, you know, um, doubled down on one area or the other. And I stayed kind of neutral across all these disciplines and continued thinking about it. It's what am I doing? Not what am I calling it um, is really coming to this, this head. And so in the early two thousands, as I started doing the forensics and litigation work, there was some early glimpses of how this was going to go. Stepping back to the early two thousands, if you really understand when people say this e-discovery boom and ESI and all these terms that get thrown around about civil, even criminal litigation about data, there wasn't a way to bring computer or digital information into litigation easily. That being said, it's because a lot of the frameworks for the legal standards in which evidence can be presented, and there's there's different forms of evidence, but we'll just we'll use you know, discovery evidence that you request from a party and they have to hand over a document, let's say. Traditionally, it was paper documents. And this goes back to, you know, 500 years, back to English law of what's the Magna Carta, what's an original document? And this got incorporated into the American jurisprudence of, you know, where there's this, this sanctity of what evidence is, and there should be, you know, that it, it's infallible and it's traceable and it has this chain of custody and you can you can really know who's touched it in that when you present it in court, it's the truest representation of how it was um, used in that business term, how it was stored, and it's been unmodified in ways that alter its meaning or integrity. And they didn't have a way to do that. And and if you look at it, and I think you'll remember and or appreciate this, is that you know when when there's these big litigations against these post two thousand eleven companies, you know people what were, again pause for a second. 
by the way, get ready for a lot of litigation between companies in this economic downturn in 2013. This trends pretty heavily when there's a technology downturn, everybody starts suing each other. So another reason why I knew this was coming and got in front of this, because <laughs> I've seen this happen before. And because in 2001, when this happened, everybody started suing each other and they had to really kind of from the judiciaries and you know the district judges, particularly in Southern District of New York, where they say, well, hold on a second. Let's all pause. What, what, what is a document? And they had to have almost this very kind of um, you know, thoughtfulness around it that didn't exist. And what's going to represent an electronic document versus a paper document? And what's the same? What's the difference? How we're going to support the sanctity of that evidence? And they set up a, a several set of rules because also there was it goes back to what we're seeing today is there was an information governance problem. People did not have consistent information records management between paper and, da and data. And they said, well, hold on, you can't have both. Or if you do have a policy, where's your policy? We don't have that. So let me get this straight. You're going to delete everything off a server the minute, the minute there's a litigation, but you're going to produce paper? Sure, why not? Well, that's spoliation, is it? There's no rules. And so they had to come up with these rules that basically say, thou shalt not do that. In the anticipation of litigation, you must preserve all records, paper, electronic, or otherwise. Figure it out. And that became the discovery boom, really kind of the shorthand way of it, um, of, of people having to build into their governance programs, litigation readiness, and this ability to um, preserve, collect, um, and produce this information. However, you know, if you look at it, it's, you know, you had to bring these experts in that then had to testify to, too. So you had this you know, supporting evidentiary things. And there was, you know, expert witnesses under Rule 26 that actually get adopted into the federal court system like I did early on, not knowing it. I just thought, okay, this is cool. Didn't realize how big of a deal it was at the time in early 2000, but basically said, well, here's what happened. Here's what I saw. Here's what I tested. Um, it's transparent. Their expert can go test it. And their experts would. Not to be fine, both sides would have experts come in and say, this is Dan's email. Cool. How much did that cost? I billed $100,000. What did what the other expert bill? $100,000. Like, that's awesome. Yay. And the courts were just like, well, that took a lot of extra time and money. And both sides were like, yeah, it's just the same data. Why are we doing this? And, you know, I think there was probably some self-preservation from the forensics and scopulas. Well, no, no, no. You know, let's have two people do this for validation. No, bullshit. Um, and a lot of it was just basically... It's, it's data. Data is data. It's there. It's there. We, we set a set of frameworks around both the technical and civil litigation procedures that says what a document is. It's either going to be there or not. It's going to have the metadata fields that you can challenge it, but the reality it's there or not. So it's this process that existed of extracting data and producing it in, in civil litigation. And they said, well, why don't we just have one person do it? Well, who's going to hire them? Why is it both parties? And this role of a neutral came up that I started doing in, in the early, you know, the, around 2009, 11, 12, 13. And it was great because both parties are like, oh, cool. We're just getting the same evidence because you're just going to hand us over whatever you produce and you did it and it's controlled and great. And there's all the documentation. We just, we both split the bill. It's great. Court's like, great. They assigned me to do this. I'm like, all right, that makes sense. Unknowns to me really was there's this provision in the, Federal rules is for a procedure under Rule 53 for what's called a special master. And it sets forth this guidelines in which special masters can be used. And it's been changed, modified, adopted, and you know, through different literal acts of Congress over the years and how they get adopted. So this is happening on a parallel track. And a lot of these folks were doing things in very different capacities, but similar in the sense that they may not be doing like the electronic ESI type of data work, but other types of work. Famous one being Ken Feinberg, and if you can watch the 
documentary worth he was the one he was the special master appointed under the attorney general to basically divide up the funds for the 9-11 compensation victims fund and he had to sit there and build out basically damage calculations for what somebody's life's worth and how to award them and what's the process and all these intricate parts of taking something from point a to point b under a very uh, watched and contentious legal uh, process and that's often when special masters are used so I'm doing this neutral work. I'm doing the expert witness work. In 2015, I get a call. Hey, we need a special master. It's kind of like a neutral America uh, on this big litigation involving a, a large company um, in the Bay Area that does uh, a lot of stuff. And um, we need to come on and do the, the, this work, and we're going to hire you as a special master. I'm like, cool. It sounds cool. I like that title. It's a title I can live it with. Was capital <laughs> S, it's capital S, capital S. So it's a proper noun. So at four, a report. And, or at and, least a defined term in a contract. Yeah. And it would, I would be, you know, I would be addressed. There's nothing better than being addressed as a special master. And when I would ask my staff and my family, the dogs and everybody else to continue that trend, they politely declined, um, which was sad because I think that should be, it's like a doctor. I should be called you know, professor wherever I go. Apparently, that's not the way it works. But anyway, so they said, and this is what it is. And I really dug into it. So, well, this is interesting. So there's there's a set of provisions around this that says, hey, this is what you're going to have to um, do this process on behalf of not just parties, but the court. And really what was happening was I was assisting the court in a very complicated dispute over the dispute. And the dispute I was managing was over the data, how the data was going to be collected processed and produced in a way that's never been done before through a completely unique set of data. And I had to use just about everything in my, my, my toolkit and it drawed upon my legal background, cybersecurity, network security, governance, chain of custody for the, I mean, you, there was every element of this that I had to run. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of uniquely qualified for this because again, I never cared what I was called and doing all these functions, but I did them all. And I never siloed myself. So that was like a, a perfect nominee for this. And I got involved with that. And then I was like, well, it was cool. It built a ton and it was kind of a prestigious thing. And my other friends with inside there said, wow, I can't believe you got that. And they were kind of jealous. And uh, I was just like, okay, cool. It was kind of a sidebar thing. And, you know, this litigation continues. I was like, it's just another day at the office. And then got pulled into a few more. And I realized it was this thing that was needed in the judiciary. And because there's now this understanding of how electronic data has to come in in one point and one set of rules, and then there's all other rules in litigation that are tangential to this, but there's specific grounds around, say, electronically stored information. And then you have the special master rule that says, look, we can bring a special master to come in, and the role of a special master is to have these informal meetings, you know, meet and confers, and set forth a process on behalf of the court to move a sticky issue through. So it's often something that the judge will hand off, often a magistrate judge who handles a lot of discovery issues says, special master, whoever, deal with this shit. I have so much else on my plate. Both parties are talking past each other. I just need you to, to take their part. And particularly when it comes around to technology, these are where these things are becoming increasingly important because they're saying, look, so much of the world is data. It's digital. It's stored on complicated devices. And it's not like it was in the early days where it was just getting an email box. I'd go pop 
you know, side off of a computer, image a hard drive, or log on to an exchange server at three o'clock in the morning and do my data collection and dump mailboxes then. These are much more complicated data sets. These are logs, these are ephemeral data. These are things that are running in ways that we've never seen before. And the data can be exponentially uh, bigger in storage and volume if we have to do a preservation thing. So all these things that have really existed in my life have come into this odd way of doing the special master work. And I really subsided it into the ESI special master work. So electronically, that's really my subset. There's other functions of special masters under rule 53 and you know there's different type of special masters doing different things from damage like i said ken feinberg doing damage damage calculations and all these folks that do there's only a handful of people do the esi stuff and through this process we've also realized particularly as it's gotten in the news is there's one there's a need for it the judiciary needs it um there's a few people that can do it can do it really well such as myself who can really assist the American judicial system and these judges get through things. But the caveat is the word special master uh, has some negative connotations in history, particularly the word master. We've seen it in IT. And we do live in a world where, and you know this, I've been a big proponent of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I had to really kind of accept that, that the word special master, as much as I want everybody calling me that, is not special <laughs> anymore. And so through the process, the uh, Merrill Hirsch, great guy who's a special master as well, but ran the, honestly, the, I think it was like the special, I forgot, well, honestly, I already forgot the name of our group before, it was a special master sometime, but we changed the name to court appointed neutrals. It's a much more acceptable term, but it also reflects more of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at some of the earlier rulings of special masters, it was like, oh, they would do trial work and they do this, I was like, I do pre-trial discovery work. Like I'm like half the stuff I do, all the stuff I do has no, it never goes to trial. It doesn't fit in the mode of what, what most judges think of what a special master is, even litigators, and there's a lot of education. So we decided, you know, the best thing to do is really kind of change the name that better reflects what the pool of people that do these functions are and be more inclusive in it. And we've seen it reflected in uh, even some of the judiciaries that have said, look, we just don't want, we don't want to use that word master. It's got you know, in our culture, where it's been used and what this district court is, ain't going to fly. And so we've now, when you hear the word special master and court appointed neutral, they're very much interchangeable. But we're in a process right now through these groups of amending or updating, changing the ABA model rules around the word to be court appointed neutral. And the hope is at some legislative session, um, and I'm unfortunately less hopeful in the current uh, judiciary subcommittees right now, they don't tend to be so favorable towards diversity, equity, inclusion based on some of the things I said in the last two weeks. It's gonna be hard to change that word on the, on, on the federal rules of civil procedure, but at some point, rule 53 will be amended to do that. So long story, is that it's a very unique function that exists to help and assist judges deal with very bespoke issues. Um, and where I sit is around doing these things that fall around um, data privacy, cybersecurity. Um, sometimes those come into effect in these things. And like some of the cases I have, it's been a data privacy, data security, and electronic discovery. It's been all these things at once. Sometimes it could be just the ESI capture, but really to set these processes through that demystifies uh, the things and really gets things done faster, more efficiently, and more cost-effective for everybody.
And that's really the function for me is as I look forward is this is a cool place to be in. It's the accumulation of so many things I've done. I really do enjoy the litigation work. I enjoy helping people. And it's, it's kind of cool to be working with these, these federal judges and, and seeing, you know, some of these folks are pretty esteemed and they're you know, famous in my eyes, at least in litigation and um, help them get back to doing what they do better. Give them some more time with their family during the weekends. Even what I said with CISOs, what do you do with Splunk? I was like, I give time with CISOs. Uh, I give CISOs back time with their, their family during the weekends. I'm hoping they're doing the same thing with the judges. It's just this stuff can get very needlessly complicated. My goal is to distill this stuff down in a way that's understandable, solves the, the problem at hand. Is it going to be perfect? No. There's no such thing. Don't let you know perfect be the enemy of good and just get these things done. And that's that's really my function and role and where I, I kind of hang my hat these days. Nice. So you've got a consultancy as well. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about that as well and where people can find you. Yeah, so uh, don't go to the website because it's, I have to get that up at some point. Um, <laughs> actually, find me on LinkedIn. But yeah, with, with the self consulting as a consultancy, I've been doing the special master work on. But you know, we're really also focused on the other aspects because there's all there's so much that gets in this interchange, and I have to stay abreast, aware, and fresh of this. And I really do enjoy doing the CISO work. So some of the things we're doing now is look, there's a wide berth of consulting services in cyber that I've done in the past. You know, 20 years, but what do I do in the of the month? And that's, it's seeing progress, seeing companies and organizations get their program off the ground and moving and going in the right direction. So most organizations have 50, 60 different types of solutions in their environment. None of them are working well. None of them are orchestrated. Organizations have made incredibly good investments in technology. Like I said, most of these infrastructure companies are only now cybersecurity, but they still you know, look at the OSI model. The OSI model hasn't taken a dramatic shift. <laughs> you know, you're still dealing with, you know, you know, a lot of layer two, three, four issues. And okay, you probably invested in good Palo Alto, Cisco, Checkpoint, whatever it is. Like you probably have good technology. It's probably configured poorly. Because you know what? The underlying rules are all the same. They might call it differently, which is another reason why I hate cybersecurity at times is because we have to have every firewall vendor have a different name for the same goddamn thing. But I digress. Um, you know, it's just, it, that's where I want to say. I want to see these companies get achievable results in the short term. I don't like this idea that we can't build a governance program. You know, it's just too thorny. It's just, so we're never going to do it. I'm like, bullshit. We just take this step by step. You know, let, let's do this. And like I said, I, I look at it almost as like, I'm a personal trainer. You know, I'm going to help you get to your goals. I'm going to tell you also not to pick up that AI or ML machine because you're not ready for it. You're going to hurt yourself. And then you're going to be out of the game for three, six months, you know, start with the basics. I want to see you do some body weight squats, do some, you know, banded rows. Like we're going to start you out small and get couch to 5k before you go to the, to the marathon. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like I said, it's these people get really attached on why I hate cybersecurity is they're getting sold these solutions that, that they're not ready for. They don't have that level of program maturity and they're sold that the idea that, well, you're not perfect. So therefore you need this. Okay, but there is no perfect. So stop tricking people into that. And then they feel like they shouldn't buy it. And when they do buy it, they were led down the wrong path because they were going to be perfect and they're never going to be perfect. It's annoying. So to me, it's like, okay, let's assess where you are and go in. And so for me, it's this kind of um, office of the CISO uh, jumpstart kit where we come in and in one year's time, our goal is to get the hell out, which is, again, pearl clutchy to a lot of the consultancies that are out there. Um, 
because I think there's so much of this as well. We have, our goal is to really land and expand and stay and yeah, you can with other services, but my goal is to basically get them to a point of self-sufficiency. Um, Kayla Watson, who's a friend of mine and the wife of Chris Wasserman, who you know at Assessment First, and he, I was talking to her the other day and she's she's at this company, Anecdotes, that's a pretty cool platform for uh, compliance management. And she's like, she hears me give my pitch, she goes, so, so you're Hinge. I was like, what? She's like, you're the dating app, Hinge. You want to help people get so successful, they delete the app. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I want to get to yeah. after 12 months, they delete the Doug app. You know, that they they feel that they, they've, they've met their goal. It's not to sit there and get them on a subscription basis for every month where I can go get VC funds and rounds and pat myself on the back for the amount of uh, money I can milk out of somebody unnecessarily, you know, year after year. So it's really the goal is to get in, get out, build out their program, find them the right type of CISO, maybe coach their CISO that they're bringing in to doing more of this business talk. I think one of the challenges that that I'm seeing and you've mentioned is that, you know, there's, there's going to be that point of year for them. They're like, well, they're going to want you. Like you talk business as well as the tech and you bring in somebody that's too tech, they're going to still want you. So to me, that's okay. Well, let's coach more people in the industry. Let's make the, the idea scalable, not to the person. And if we can get more people that are, you know, good tactical CISOs and security leaders to be more business oriented, I think we can solve a lot of these problems. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's an industry, that's a community problem. So I want to stick with that. So yeah, that's, that's what we're going to be doing in cybersecurity. And then on the data privacy realm is, it's really, I, I get this idea of, you know, what's the value of a record? You know, there's data breaches and I've done cradle to grave data breaches from first call going in there, collect the data all the way to breach notification list and help them put together. I was had several companies where I did the breach notification list. Um, we had to build those. What people don't realize, and I think whether it be folks that receive these notifications or possibly plaintiff's counsel or other regulators that are very reactionary to, oh my God, 500,000 people were impacted by this, is the data is not organized in a way that you think it is. It's not a spreadsheet. Mm -mm. The breach notification list is a goddamn mail merge. We have to build that. It's really, 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 really hard and expensive. <laughs> Attackers don't do that. They're going to look at this and go, shit data set, not going to use it, move on. Attackers are more business savvy in that sense. They're, they're going to know that once they get the data, they're going to use what's valuable, what's not. Granted, they do likely have some back <laughs> dark web databases that rival some of the credit bureau monitoring and, and data brokerage stuff. Which, um, But you know, in the end of the day, it's like, okay, is every record worth the same? I've moved three times in the last year. I've gotten divorced. I've gone through all these things in my life. My digital footprint and personality a year ago is very different than who I am today. So if I get notified because of, you think about the, the dwell time, by the time the investigation done, the notification, you know, nine months, after the incident really occurred, that data is super stale. And yeah, there, there's definitely reasons and times for people to be notified and for there to be a, a regulatory oversight investigation, but I question it all the time. So working with some of the folks I understand on the, you know, kind of on the dispute and data privacy consulting side is what's in the environment, what's at risk. And when there are these things, should you settle? Should you fight it? Should you just say, Okay, look, only 20% of these people really have data that, that's valuable to anybody. The rest of it exists on the dark web. They've been breached numerous times before. No, we're not going to pay this person $500 for their lives being so negatively impacted. So there's different ways of looking at that. 
and I think that becomes a proactive service too. And, and this is this accumulation of everything I want to do is look at the data. I want to be able to do these data models inside organizations to say, here's your riskier data. This will help corporate governance. This will help insurance underwriting for cybersecurity policies that are traditionally looking at the infrastructure and other things that don't really represent where the risk is. But if we can actually look at the data and tell you where the risk is on one hand, but really where the value is, how long has this data been there? What is it? Is it stale? And, and I can't tell me the number of times I've done data breach investigations where it's a stale marketing database. So you start to notify everybody, why do you have this? Well, we collected it all and you know we thought we were gonna use it one time and uh, we never did. And I was like, well, great. Now this data has zero to no value, but just costs you a million dollars in legal fees and breach notification. Why, why do you, did you see that that's not worth it? And they're like, yeah, we get it now. Well, what if we can do that proactively is go in and say, purge this data or it's duplicate and really do true data mapping that needs to be done um, that's never existed. So contextual data introspection inside enterprise environments to really say, here's your risk areas and here's what you should do and here's your value. Excellent. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Cybersecurity Interviews. Next week, join Dan and I as we talk a little bit more about my frustrations with the industry and where I see we need to go. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.